0: Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: Money is corrosive of other values. So that the kinds of forms of esteem and status that used to exist along many different dimensions all get consumed by how much someone's paid.
2: Hello, and welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I have a quick ask for you. We are trying to figure out what you like, what you don't like, where who you are, like <laughs> what kind of things you do. Um, so we've got a short podcast survey, uh, which would really, really help us if you would fill it out. You can find the survey at www.voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. Again, voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. We will also put the link in show notes. you could just take a couple minutes and, find it and fill this out. It would really help us help you. A theme of the show recently, uh, pretty explicit, but, but maybe not always, is how do we value the time we spend? How do we value the work we do? And is that system of weighting that we're using actually working for us? Is it creating a better world, a better economy, better lives, better families? And obviously my answer on some level here is no. Uh, but, but then there's this question of why and what would actually be better? Um, is there a way to think about society? Where we could have that, that, that societal advance, that engine actually harness people's talents and desires uh, without some of the more poisonous, selfish, and socially deteriorating dimensions of what we've got. Um, can we have the good without the bad? My guest today has written a book that is right on the mark of this conversation. Um, It's Daniel Markovitz, who is a professor at Yale Law School and the author of the book The Meritocracy Trap, which is a pretty thoroughgoing critique of some fundamental both moral and economic underpinnings of our society. And, And this conversation takes some themes we've been developing on the show for a while and threads them together much more centrally and I think in a way that speaks to this much more powerfully. So I don't want to say too much more about it, but it's a great conversation. As always, you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with guest suggestions, feedback, whatever. But here's Daniel Markovitz. Daniel Markovitz, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm grateful for the time. Oh, no, I'm thrilled to do this. So I wanted to start with something I heard you say that was very provocative, which is the problem of modern inequality is
1: no longer poverty, it's wealth. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. You can think of inequality as having two aspects. There's low-end inequality, which is the gap between the middle class and the poor. And then there's high-end inequality, which is the gap between the middle class and the rich. And the stylized fact about the United States for the past 50 years or so is that low-end inequality has been decreasing. It's still high. It's a scandal compared to other rich countries in the world. But it's not nearly as high as it used to be. It's probably, depending on how you measure it, between a quarter and a half of what it was in, say, 1960. On the other hand, high-end inequality has been exploding. The gap between the rich and the middle class is two to two and a half times as big as it used to be. And that's the distinctive form of inequality that we're suffering right now.
2: Which is a, a distinctively socially destabilizing form of inequality, right? When you when you look at revolutions in history, they, they often tend to come out of a discontented middle class that is seeing an, an upper elite
1: pull away from it. Yeah, I think it's destabilizing in at least two respects. The first is that middle class anger is a very potent political and social force and often a destructive force. And one of the reasons it's so destructive at this particular moment, I think, and this is something I hope we'll be able to come back to, is that the ideology of the time makes it seem like the middle class's stagnation or exclusion is in a way justified. And so you have a kind of dark psychology of justified disadvantage. On the other hand, elites, when they get rich enough, are really, really hard to contain. They can use their economic power to determine the political system. And if you look across all of human experience, across all of space and time, a credible view to have is that there's really only one instance in which a society has succumbed to as extreme high-end inequality as the United States suffers today and hasn't ended up unwinding itself through revolution or losing a war. That is the United States in 1929. So there's both danger and hope.
2: So I, I don't really traffic in hope. I'm more going to sit in the dangerous space of this conversation. <laughs> but one, one of the points you've made in, in your work is that the nature of the rich, both their literal income and the way that income is socially justified has changed dramatically over the past century or so. And, and you have this nice line that the rich have become a superordinate working class. Can
1: you explain what that means? Yeah. If you look at almost all of human history, the rich did not work for a living. In fact, they constituted themselves in opposition to work. They constituted themselves as what Thorsten Veblen, the great sociologist, called a leisure class. That is to say, people who devoted their time and effort to activities that had no productive function. And were chosen because they were so demanding of time that only somebody who didn't have to work for a living could be able to do them well. And so Veblen writes about things like chivalric rituals, courtly manners, mastery of ancient languages. Veblen actually thought English spelling was an instance of this because English is so hard to spell that only if you don't have to work for a living can you master English spelling. On the other hand, everybody else worked. You could tell up to about 50, 60, 70 years ago, you could tell how poor somebody was by how hard they worked. Today, that relationship has been completely reversed. Elites work for a living. They work harder than they used to. They work harder in terms of brute hours than the middle class on average. And they get most of their income by working. And that's what I mean when I say they're a superordinate working class. And that produces a sense of social legitimacy and entitlement that it's very hard to shake by the traditional arguments that were used to shake other kinds of inequality.
2: Can, can you just run through some of the numbers here? You, you do a nice job cutting this idea of the income that people get from their own labor versus the income they get from somebody else's labor, which is a little bit of a different cut than the, than the labor versus capital income idea. Can you
1: talk about how that's evolved? Sure. Let me talk a little bit about the cut first, and then I'll talk a little bit about how it's evolved. Um, The cut is the following. You might want to distinguish between the economic form of income, that is say whether immediately it's derived from labor or capital, and what might be called the moral attribution of income, whether the person who gets the income has a claim on it based on her or his own labor as opposed to based on inherited capital or a windfall or something like that. And One of the things that's happened is that the moral attribution of income has become much, much more labor heavy. At the top. Even just wages, straightforward wages, probably now account for almost half of the top 1%'s income. If you add on to that entrepreneurial income, that is to say, income earned by people who work for a living but are not employed by anybody. They're the owners or proprietors of businesses. So these are partners in law firms, for example, partners in doctor's offices. That pushes you up even above half. The best current estimate is that that gets you to maybe 53, 54% of the 1%'s income. Right, Jeff Bezos makes like $30,000 a year. Yeah, so so, right, so Jeff Bezos, we haven't even gotten to yet. So right now, what we're getting to is people like partners at Simpson-Thatcher, if you add on top of that now, founders shares. So these are is income that's received in an economic form that's capital, but is exchanged for the labor of the person who receives it. So these are entrepreneurs. And if you add to that things like carried interest that hedge fund people get. Now you're getting, by my rough calculations, roughly three quarters of the income of the top one percent and i say rough twice here because we don't actually have the microdata that makes it possible to be precise here because all of our microdata involves tax categories and tax categories track neither economic form nor moral attribution so there has to be some speculation here but roughly speaking i would say 75% of the top 1%s income comes from labor in this sense and not from capital and what was that like say 100 years ago roughly A hundred years ago, roughly, it was, I'd have to actually look to give you confident numbers, but it was probably a quarter or maybe less. A hundred years ago, the rich were capitalists, mostly who had inherited their fortunes and were getting money off of rents that they were accruing by mixing their inherited capital with other people's labor. So it's a total transformation, a reversal in the way in which the rich are rich. And so this reversal comes with brings with it a different moral
2: calculus, right? You just made the moral attribution of labor. When you're making that labor for yourself, when you started the company, or you're a partner in the law firm, and you're working 12 hours a day, and you've missed your kid's birthdays three years in a row, it develops a sense that, you know, you really earned this and, and the other people didn't. You, you have this nice um, example of a, an email that went around Wall Street when there was the anger in the aftermath of the financial crisis that kind of exemplified this. Do you want to just talk a bit about that, how the moral attribution of income
1: changes people's moral experience of their income? Yeah, let me, let me start exactly with this email and then I want to move back to something that you said right at the beginning of this conversation. So the email basically said, we are Wall Street. We get to work early in the morning. We stay till midnight. We don't go to the bathroom when we're sitting on a position. We don't form a union. We eat what we kill. And the idea here was that the people who worked in finance think of themselves as working people and as getting their income the way working people all do and having the entitlement to get their income in in that way. And there's no sense of inherited privilege or good fortune. There's the sense that this is the sweat of their brow. And there's a way in which that's not a crazy thought for them to have, where it would have been a crazy thought for the aristocrats of the ancien regime to have. So that's one important point. The other important point is that as low-end inequality diminishes, as poverty gets less pressing, the humanitarian case for economic redistribution also diminishes. And I want to be very clear here that the humanitarian case remains, and there is more deeper and worse poverty in the United States than in other rich countries. And if you have my personal politics, it's a scandal, and maybe it's the most pressing distributive problem of the age. But it's nothing like what it was at mid-century. So although both the left and the right today think of mid-century America as an economic idyll of shared prosperity, in fact, probably about a third of Americans at mid-century were grindingly poor. This wasn't relative poverty. This was absolute material deprivation. And if you look at books like Michael Harrington's The Other America or some of Gabriel Kolko's work from mid-century describing just how little many, many millions of Americans had, that was an immediate humanitarian claim. And that has also slipped away. So what you have on the one hand, the rich think they deserve it. And on the other hand, the poor seem less insistently demanding on redistribution. And that combination makes the kind of inequality that we have now very ideologically stable. So I I want to signpost something in
2: the conversation for people following along, which is there are two critiques that you will hear of meritocracy, and you hear one much more than the other. So there's what you might call the aspirational critique of meritocracy, which is that we want to have a meritocracy, and we really don't. We want to have a society in which people rise up by virtue of their hard work and their intelligence and their talent and you know good decisions they make. But in fact, what we have is a um, stratified, stultified order where people are rising up because their parents can spend more money on them, and we'll talk about that. But the other thing that that you hear less is a principled critique of meritocracy, which is it just isn't a good system even if you had it. And this right here seems to me to be one of the places where you begin to see a divergence. So I want to push you on on a cut people make about your story there on the rich. So one way of looking at what's problematic about those Wall Street folks is that it's not true that they earned what they have right this is maybe let's call it the elizabeth warren critique you didn't build the roads that got you there you didn't build the phone lines on under which you're making your trades you didn't build you didn't build you didn't build and so you're operating on top of this massive societal accumulation public accumulation of knowledge of capital of um, material. There are all these people working around you, not getting paid what you're getting paid. You have to get there somehow on the subway and that you're not giving back enough. And so the idea that you eat what you kill is ridiculous. Um, So that's one version. And I think that's sort of the aspirational critique to some degree. There's another cut, which is by virtue. So maybe what you say is, yeah, that would be great. It would be great if you were doing all that, and you were curing cancer or you were trying to invent the future of renewable energy. The problem is not that we don't want a society where the people working the hardest, doing the best, who are the most talented are able to generate returns on that talent. The problem is that we've developed a structure to that society where they're wasting everybody's time and maybe doing things that are socially negative. They're doing high-speed trading. They um, you know, work for McKinsey helping the government of Saudi Arabia. Uh, you, know, you can come up with, with your set of examples here. And, and, and so I want to hear which one you think is a problem here. Is a problem that they're wrong about being working people or is a problem that, that, they're, uh, that what they are doing, the work they are doing is not virtuous, but if it were virtuous, it would be fine? Or is a problem here that it just doesn't matter and like how hard you work should be unrelated to how society treats you?
1: Yeah, good. So I think it's a version of the second example you gave that people are doing high-speed trading or things that aren't socially productive. But it's a much more generalized version of that argument, which makes it bleed into the first. There's a way in which, on the kind of view I'm developing, those two are not distinct. And and let me say a little bit about that. So here's a way in which economists think about what each person's product is. They imagine each person's product is the difference between everything that society produces when they work and when they don't work, where in the state in which they're not working, everybody else is doing exactly what they were doing when the person was working all right? And in that sense, my view is that most of the people at the top get most of their income in proportion to their product. So that there's a way in which it's true that there are all these roads and there's a lot of other stuff they didn't build. But given that all that stuff is in place, what they're doing is they're adding value and they're getting paid something like what they add. So that differentiates me a little bit from one wing of the Elizabeth Warren critique. On the other hand, I don't think that's the way to measure somebody's product. The real way to measure somebody's product is the difference between what's produced when they're working and when they're not working, where in the state in which they're not working, everybody else gets to reorganize everything they do in order to be maximally productive without them. And the problem we face is the following. The rich, because they have bent the arc of technological innovation, have changed the way in which we make everything in such a way that their skills are incredibly essential. And they block everybody else from being productive. So even if in some narrow sense, a particular rich person is getting paid in proportion to her product, the whole system in which she's so rich is rigged in favor of precisely the skills she has. And if she weren't there and the rich weren't as rich, we'd be making things differently. And then we'd have just the same product we have now, just about, but differently distributed. So in that sense, everybody in the elite is like the high-speed trader. Everybody in in the elite is contributing to a system that favors their skills, but properly understood doesn't benefit society. So let me try
2: to offer what I think is the economist's response to that, which is that's a version of the lump of labor fallacy, which is there's a certain number of jobs that need to be done in society. And if you take somebody out of one of them and you just – like, or I'm sorry. If somebody takes one of them, they're just taking it from someone else. Take them out. We just reorganize somebody else to be in the job. That's all great. But that in fact, the key thing that capitalism, that meritocracy, that this whole social order is meant to unlock is the growing of the pie. That you're trying to generate more jobs. And so – To maybe use a high-speed trader example, although I'm on the side that thinks high-speed trading is socially negative, so it's not a great example for me. But to use a high-speed trader example, when you hear them defend it, what they will say is, this is incredible levels of efficient capital allocation. If it's working the way it's supposed to, which let's grant for the sake of argument, it is going to then lead to more efficient decisions being made elsewhere in the economy. The, the most productive businesses can then expand and that's going to increase overall productivity and there are going to be more total jobs. You've you'll will grown the pie. Um, what's wrong with that
1: argument? Good. So, so first of all, I think that that's just not true about the world that we're in right now. And I'll give you some sort of – top-line macro indicators that it's not true, and then an example that's meant to illustrate how it's not true, and bring us back to the argument we were discussing that we were having a moment ago. Um, If you look at things like GDP per capita growth, it is not higher in the period of meritocratic inequality starting in, say, 1980, than it was in the period of relative equality between 1945 and 1970. If you look at total factor productivity growth, It is not higher in the period of inequality than it was during the period of equality. And so the indicators that this system of stratification is generating innovation, which makes there be more for everybody, just aren't there. So that's the the first point. But the second point is we we can talk about more concrete examples. Let's look at finance. The central production worker in mid-century finance, so let's look at a part of mid-century finance, home mortgage finance, was the loan officer. All right, the loan officer was a middle-class, mid-skilled person whose job it was to assess individual houses and individual borrowers to see whether individual loans were providently made by banks that would originate and then service the loans. Today, the central worker is the elite person who devises and trades derivatives and other securities, and the loan officer has been de-skilled and has become basically a form filler in her. And so what you now have is a high-tech and stratified form of home mortgage finance in which you have a few workers at the top and a large rump of workers at the bottom, as opposed to what you used to have, which was a middle-class sector of the economy. In fact, all of finance has gone through this transformation. But here's the interesting thing. If you look at the best available economic studies, they suggest that the transactions costs of financial intermediation have not gone down as a result of these developments. They also suggest that the portion of fundamental risk borne by the individual has not gone down. So what we've done is we've replaced one mode of doing something, which was relatively equal, with another mode of doing something, which is highly unequal, but is not overall more productive. And in that state, you can say of the person who's the sophisticated derivatives trader, sure, in this world, you're very productive. But in the old world... You wouldn't have been very productive because the old world would have deployed financial technologies that make your skills not very valuable. And guess what? The old world, we would all have been as well off on average as we are in this world. So we would have more equality, but no less total well-being. And that's the argument of the book, that in that situation, it's not true to say that the derivatives trader deserves her his income because what she's doing is not socially productive because she's blocking the better equal world. Even though it's not the case that she's committing fraud or getting rents in some conventional economic sense.
2: So let's pull out of finance because I think finance is for defenders of the capitalist structure, the meritocratic structure, a particularly bad example because look around. (laughs) Right. Totally. Um, But I think this will help us get back to a core part of your argument. So if you look at the top 1% of the income distribution, the single most common job in there is doctor of some sort the the, right. the plurality of people who make um you know, the top one percent income are, are are medical professional in a medical profession that we largely respect. Right. And I don't think people in general feel badly about very talented people going and becoming doctors or surgeons. And I don't think they worry too much about doctors and surgeons making a lot of money. Um, you make the point that, One thing that has happened in the past 100 years is that there's been a big change towards the amount of work the top 1% are doing. So these doctors and surgeons, they work very hard. Surgeons work very, very hard, for instance, like legendarily. Um, But everybody's hours there are very long. They're on call. They're filling out paperwork. A point you make is that as it became possible to make a lot more money from this, we developed a virtue structure around a lot of labor. That the best thing you can tell other people is that you are busy. Um, and that leisure, which used to be the thing that you displayed, has become a kind of badge of social dishonor. So before we get into whether or not doctors should have the money, do you, do you just want to talk about that kind of generating mechanism by which people want to be in professions that you work super long hours? Because you can imagine that being incredibly unappealing. But instead, we've created a, a social outcome where you want the status of being that busy And you want the status of being that busy in a high-status profession. And it's those things that are clicking together to create the the moral structure that sustains all this. So why is that bad and how is it different?
1: Yeah. So it's completely different from what was the case before. Um, It used to be that the leisure class would have been humiliated by revealing publicly that it had to work for a living. Um there's this great scene in Jeeves and Worcester, the P.G. Woodhouse story, in which Bertie Wooster has no money and someone says to him, you could get a job. And he says, work, some of my friends work, some of them swear by it. And work for him has become like a hobby or a resort cure, because the idea that you could work for money was so inconceivable to that elite and so undignified that they wouldn't have considered it. Today, on the other hand, everybody in the elite wants to signal how hard they work. All the time. You ask anybody in the elite, How have you been? And the correct answer is So busy. Um, When I told my students at some point, I asked them, How many of you have ever sent an email at 2 in the morning just to signal that you were still working? About a third of them raised their hand, and then someone said, You know, there's an app for that. So you can fake it now (laughs) in order to appear that you're working. When, in fact, you weren't. It used to be, of course, the elite would be secretly working and would fake not working. They would work at night so no one could see them. The Wall Street Journal advertises that people who don't have time make time to read the Wall Street Journal. And this idea that busyness has become the badge of honor is a big sort of psychomoral draw for elites to get into this system. Because, among other things, once you get rich enough, More money is not a very good draw if it's not connected to something that gives you status because you already have everything you need materially. So the money as compensation for extreme labor, which is seen as socially valuable, is a really good way of signaling just how elite you are. On the other hand, people excluded from the elite increasingly don't have enough work. And they also suffer as a result of this system because they are told that their skills and talents are not deserved. There's this nice English phrase of when you're fired, you're made redundant. And they're told that they're redundant, they're surplus to economic requirements. And that produces a kind of demoralization and harm independent of and on top of the economic exclusion that comes from this. So, this is a system that really segregates people by how hard they work and produces an overworked elite, which is compulsively addicted to this kind of work, and then an excluded middle class that doesn't get the social status associated with work now. You you have a nice line
2: that the Marxist system of class exploitation has just moved up the class ladder.
1: Can, Can you draw that out? Yeah. So Marx has this idea of the lumpenproletariat. These are the people who are at the bottom of the economic order and who are prevented by capitalism from coming to class consciousness. And today, the lumpen group in this sense is the middle class. These are people who are increasingly excluded from economic prosperity, but the meritocratic system prevents them from coming to class consciousness saying, hold on a minute. The reason we're excluded is that a system of hierarchy is remaking the whole economic world, in a way that doesn't value us, and instead characterizes middle class exclusion as a series of individual failures to measure up. And so the middle class has become like the lumpenproletariat. The elite, on the other hand, has become like exploited labor. The elite now, one way to think about this is they study, they train, they spend the first third of their lives in school. They build up skill and talent. You call it human capital. And then the way in which they get income is by mixing that human capital with their own contemporaneous labor. And the thing is, under current technology, the only way I can get income out of my human capital is by working on it myself. If I have physical or financial capital, if I own stocks or I inherit an estate or a factory, I can be lazy, mix that with someone else's labor, and get the income. But if all I have or most of what I have is my own training, The only way I can get the income is by mixing it with my own labor. And so what I do is I exploit my own human capital or myself, my person, in order to extract a return. And so I become alienated and exploited labor. Of course, I get the proceeds of my self-exploitation. So there's a sense in which I'm wealthy, but I'm not well because to be somebody who is alienated and exploited is not a good state to be in. Even if the economic returns are very high, what do you what do you
2: mean when you say you're alienated from your own labor? You're in theory doing something you chose to do, making a ton of money.
1: Like, what what, what does your alienation look like? Right. So one thing about this system, we can talk about this at various levels, but at, at the end state, a, a striking thing about this system is that there are very few job descriptions that produce the incomes necessary to sustain eliteness across generations to get you into the 1%. As you say, it's doctors, it's lawyers, it's people in finance, it's elite managers, and then it's a smattering of other kinds of people here and there. And what that means is if, if you want to get the return that your elaborate education has generated, you've got to be in one of those fields. You don't have a whole lot of choice. You can't be an arts administration. You can't be a teacher. It's hard to be an academic. It's hard to be a journalist. Hard to be many things that you might be naturally interested in, and in fact, naturally most talented at. But the economic logic of meritocratic production and reproduction requires you to focus on the jobs that you want, so focus on the jobs that pay so much, and then also requires you to work at them all the time. So you can't even really have hobbies. So that's one sense in which you're alienated at the end. The market picks how you deploy your time rather than you by your own values and tastes. And of course, This has been going on your whole life, from preschool through elementary school, through high school, through college. You've seen at every stage that your opportunities at the next stage are going to depend on winning the competition at this stage. And so you are a kind of a a portfolio manager whose portfolio contains you. And so you manage yourself as an asset. And that's a kind of alienation also. And I see this in my students all the time, that they've done this for so long that there's a sense in which they've forgotten or maybe never even really taught themselves how to pick something they genuinely care about and then pursue it. All right, um, never a great time to take a break in the conversation like this, but let's take a quick break.
0: In US working forests or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying.
2: com slash box. I'm gonna bring myself into this conversation. So, not as the like interview from on high, but as an example. So I I'm I'm not like an organization kid from being young. I, you know, had trouble paying attention in school and did poorly and so on. But but as I became an adult, I clicked in and really worked hard as a journalist and was very successful in my uh, 20s. And I worked all the time. um I worked weekends. I worked nights um I would wake up at six and start writing every day. I wrote a newsletter for years at The Washington Post that worked that way. Um I like spending Sundays writing, and part of that is that I really love writing in the way that people like as I did it before anybody paid me before I ever thought it would be a job. Um, so I felt very lucky. But then, as you know, I got more momentum at it, a lot of job parts of it came on now the point there is not to not to um make myself nobody should be sympathetic to me on this, but but the point is this. <laughs> So I had a kid recently and I want to be around a lot and I want to turn that part of myself off that worked so hard, that that, that had a compulsion to work like that, that found that working like that fixed all the problems I had when I was young. Suddenly I had esteem and more friends and met people and like like connected it all together that like I somehow solved the problems of my youth through being successful at work. And something that I'm noticing as I try to be mindful of myself is I can't just turn it off. Like it created like an addiction and a generative energy for work that I can't just put down now that I want to be around my family more. And like that's a real struggle. And so there's a, a sense in which I really resonate to this idea that what seems like a competition you're winning. Is really one that in another sense you're losing because you're cultivating a like an approach to life that is maybe not good for you. You have, you know, when you talk about the management, at least I have, let's say, the cover that my work is socially valuable. I believe it is, whether or not it is, people can argue. But I, I talk to my friends and I've known people who've gone into management consulting or finance or corporate law who are working much longer hours than I do and are, you know, not flexibly writing something they enjoy on Sundays, but are, you know, really like on conference calls all weekend. <laughs> and you know they don't get to see their families and and i often think for what um and part of it is there's money and you get you know into a certain lifestyle but part of it is just an an endless race for esteem but then i think part of it is you just become acculturated to it it starts when you're young and have the space for it but then that is the personality you've developed like that is like the sense of um, energies and addictions and and like the way you solve your own anxiety about your own worth when you get, um, you know, that that now it's just is just embedded into you as a person. And that seems to me to be a way in which this is just poisonous up and down. It doesn't seem to me like the management consultants and high-speed traders are having great lives. It's just like everybody is somehow on you're you're either losing in esteem and like absolute material resources, or you've addicted yourself to a kind of work in which it is very hard to have a fulfilling family life. It's not great.
1: No, I think that's right. And, and look, um, you're in an enviable position in, in a couple ways. Partly what you do is socially valuable, but partly also you're doing the, the work thing you actually most want to do. Yes. I'm, I'm in a very – again, I'm not an object of sympathy. I'm mostly right. just – No, no. I get a that. Personal example. Look, nobody in this elite is an object of sympathy and we, we, I mean, we, should, we both agree about that, I think. But that doesn't mean that existentially they're in great shape. And a lot of people are working all these hours at tasks that if you'd asked them when they were 20, is this what you think you love? The answer would have been no. So that's even harder in a certain way. Um, And I also think it's not just an addiction. It's partly, you know, it's a skill to know how to deploy your time successfully at any activity. And, And you have to learn how to deploy your time successfully at work. Because it's easy to spend a lot of hours at work spinning your wheels and not finish things, not move ahead. And and elites have trained themselves to do that, to to be successful in their effortfulness at work. But it's also a skill to deploy your time successfully at non-productive things, to know how to have a hobby, to know how to have a drawn-out Sunday afternoon casually with family or friends. And it's not just, I think, that elites are addicted to the work. It's that they don't have the skill at the other thing. That's and a really co- good point. You know, this comes out. In, so one way, I mean, talking about parenting is always risky. Um, but um, I think you know, it's important. This, Talk about parenting. Yeah. I mean, there's this sense, there's this phrase you sometimes hear about, uh, especially actually among elites, about quality time with children. But there's a way in which maybe what children and families need is just quantity time. You know, lots of time devoted to the project of spending time together rather than quality time has this idea that there's some external project that we're going to devote ourselves to together. It remakes the home on the model of work as opposed to just having developed the skill of spending hours meandering around being human beings in a family. And that's a skill that it's very hard to develop if you're a member of the elite who from the beginning of school has been taught, here's how to be productive at work. Here's how to make every minute have a payoff. It's hard to shift over and learn how to make minutes not have payoffs.
2: This is a very, I think, profound point. It's, it's something Alison Gopnik, who's been on the show and is the author of a beautiful book on parenting called the, the Carpenter and the Gardener that she talks about in that book, which is that parenting didn't used to be a verb in the way it is now. It didn't used to be goal-oriented in the way it is now. And what we have primarily done is try to impose the same structures that we use in work and particularly, she argues, in education on parenting. And and that's more true sort of in this kind of upper income uh, group you're talking about, but it filters down to everybody because then everybody's in competition with what they're doing for their kids. And so the way we parent in contrast to the unstructured quantity time you're talking about is you're shuttling around to violin lessons and Mandarin lessons and, you know, doing baby Mozart (laughs) BS, and on and on and on. And so that also becomes a kind of meritocratic competition. You know, is your kid developmentally ahead of the other kids? Are they in more things? Are they achieving more in those things? Which is not great for the kids. And you know, I've had conversations with Ann Helen Peterson, who's working on this this project about millennial burnout, and 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 Derek Thompson about uh, workism. And a point they both make is that one of the things that leads to everybody feeling burned out is that once you learn the skill that is bred into you as a child that your value is in your productive achievement, and segmenting your time and organizing time such that you can do productive achievement, you can't turn that off. And so, to the extent it then pervades everything in your life from your work to your parenting eventually, but also to your hobbies, by the way. Um, you can really get into hobbies in a way that's just more work. It's just more cultivation of human capital. It's exhausting. That that feeling of burnout is a feeling of not knowing how to rest and even the things that seem like rest from the outside actually being
1: restructured into the same dynamics and st- same achievement structures as work. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And um, I think the, the main thing I want to add to that thought is that That's a direct consequence of the social and economic logic of the reproduction of human capital down the generations. That if you have a system in which elites get their income by working, mixing their labor with their human capital, parents have to build the human capital in their children. And that means they have to have this kind of work-like or education-like attitude towards raising their children because it's a productive activity. It's creating skills, training, human capital. Whereas in the old system, where elites just passed estates down to their children, it didn't really matter what the children got as children, because their dynastic position would be secured in this other way. And and that's, that's part of the economic logic of the sort of psychological and social patterns that I think we're describing.
2: From within that lens, how did you read the college admissions scandal that was all over the news recently? The celebrity one where people were paying for their kids to be on for fake
1: sports teams and so on to get into these better colleges. From, so from within that lens, again, there's this funny thing about this kind of inequality, which is that there's a kind of sympathy one has for certain elites that if you're outside of the elite, is just nuts. You know, if you're being excluded from opportunity by this system, You have no reason to have any political sympathy with people who cheat to get their way in at all. On the other hand, can you imagine being the child of a parent who fakes your way into college but doesn't tell you that they're doing it? And the feeling you must have that your parents think you don't measure up at something that is so important to them that they're willing to violate basic moral principles and expose themselves to legal jeopardy. And they don't even trust you to tell you that this is what's happening. It must be the, kind of, the greatest kind of existential rejection of a child by a parent that the child could feel. And, and so that's one sentiment I have. I, look, I want to say again, politically, that's not the main sentiment. The main sentiment is elites are cheating to get ahead. And for everybody who's excluded, that's just not acceptable. But there's this other sort of minor tone, which is really kind of tragic in the whole system, in the, in the, in the whole story. You have a nice line
2: on this, though. You write that outrage at nepotism and other disgraceful forms of elite advantage, of which this is one, implicitly valorize meritocratic ideals, yet meritocracy itself is a bigger problem. Do you want to talk about the difference between the version of this where what you're saying is it's grotesque that they are doing this because they are perverting the meritocracy and the version where you're saying it is grotesque that they ever felt the need to do this because that shows the poison fruit of meritocracy?
1: Yeah, look, the focus on these kinds of disgraceful and outrageous forms of cheating, while completely natural and in many ways apt, has as like its major premise that if elites don't cheat in these disgraceful ways, it's okay that elite schools and colleges are filled with rich kids if the rich kids get in, so to speak, on the merits. That's okay. And the problem with that thought is these schools are absolutely overwhelmingly dominated by rich kids. Um, As as you know, the Ivy League has more kids in it from parents in the top 1% of the income distribution than from the entire bottom half. And most of those kids got in not by cheating, but because the rules of meritocracy, when applied precisely as designed favor people whose parents can invest enormous amounts in training them. And if you want to unwind inequality and stop the exclusion that we're suffering, the massive exclusion of the middle class, there's a way in which focusing on those who cheat actually bolsters the moral bona fides of the system when the system is in fact what's producing most of the exclusion. So it's not a politically good strategy. There's a line
2: I recently read and love that the pissing on the altar is still paying homage to the church, which is a bit of what
1: you're (laughs) saying. Exactly right.
2: So I want to try something here for a minute. I think a really clarifying thing to do here is to structure this as an argument between the aspirational view of meritocracy, which I think is widely held. And is the conventional, is in some ways like the conventional take here, not the status quo is great, but that but that meritocracy, if we could achieve it, is great. And your more principled um, attack on it. So let me try to do this. I think the aspirational view holds when you're looking at these kinds of situations. That meritocracy is great and would be great because what we want to do is we want to cultivate a culture in which the hardest working and the most talented have plenty of incentive and reward. To gent to cultivate those talents, to work hard, for the benefit of all. They will be curing cancer. They will be finding renewable energies. They will be surgeons and doctors who are taking care of us when we are ill. They will be teachers, um, you know, teaching the next generation, and the. And if we do that, there will also then be, you know, with appropriate levels of correction for the advantages that income generate, um, the ability for other people to rise up and down too, so it doesn't, so it doesn't ossify. What is wrong with that vision? What is wrong with the vision that simply says our mistake here is not that meritocracy is bad. Our mistake here is that we are generating a very powerful cultural structure. Um, we are generating its energies at the wrong things. We are generating its energies at – harnessing its energies at reproducing itself and at a lot of professions that for some reason we we are rewarding very highly, but they are not actually a value to the rest of us.
1: Right. Look, a concrete example, just to get it out on the table, will help us then to focus this extremely helpful distinction that you're drawing. Um, Think about taxi cabs for a moment. Uh, And let's think about London taxi cabs in particular. It used to be that to be a London taxi cab driver, you had to acquire something called the knowledge. You had to study on average for about a year and a half and pass a test to show that you had a knowledge of the city that made you an adequate cab driver. Now, that was meritocratic. You had to pass the test and you had to know the thing in order to get the job. And then once you had the job, you could make a a living wage, a middle class wage being a cab driver. And the critical thing about that system was one, you could make a living wage as a cab driver. And two, although it was meritocratic, you didn't have to have the highest score on the test. You didn't have to have a graduate degree. What you had to have was merit that was functionally related to a particular form of production that was relatively equal. Today, as we all know, taxicab services are being put out of business by Uber. Now, Uber de-skills the drivers. They don't need to know anything other than how to follow the app on their smartphone. And it's run by a group of super-skilled people who are incredibly skilled, incredibly trained, have had to win and win and win at a very refined competition. And moreover, there's no way to get from being a driver to being one of the people who runs Uber no workplace hierarchy to work through, no way to get workplace training, your salary is certainly not sufficient for you to pay for your kids to go to fancy schools. So the other system, the system we have now, is also, in a sense, meritocratic. But here's the difference between them. In the first system, it was meritocratic with a relatively compressed distribution of skills and outcomes. In the second system, it was meritocratic with a massively distended distribution of skills and outcomes. And part of the point of the book is to say there's a dynamic in the kind of meritocracy that we have which pushes towards the massive skewing and distention of skills and outcomes and concentrating the rewards at the smallest, narrowest, pointiest tip of the hierarchy, and that that's not actually better for anyone. And so to get back to your question, the way I'd answer is it is sensible that people should be rewarded who do well at things that are socially productive, but we should favor ways of organizing our social and economic life that have things that are socially productive be more nearly equally rewarded. And we should pick ways of making things, ways of delivering services, ways of running schooling that don't skew achievements so far at the very top, because that's a destructive dynamic. So let me. I'm going to continue taking the other side of this because I think it's
2: helpful. So using that very, very useful taxicab analogy, the taxicab status quo before Uber, before Lyft, um, and I think there's a lot to be critical of in the way they just bulldoze regulations and so on. But one would say is it was not a meritocracy. It was an artificial limiting of supply. A great thing about learning the information was it was one way to justify in a quasi meritocratic fashion that you weren't going to let more people drive taxi cabs but that also limited the number of taxi cabs and made them expensive and in america you had these cities that had low numbers of medallions the people who had the medallions organized to keep other people from getting medallions um the taxicabs were sometimes great sometimes quite bad um there were huge racial disparities in who would get picked up it's very hard sometimes to get taken where you wanted to go i remember living in dc and when i moved to dc i, I lived in a, a not great neighborhood um just in terms of its crime levels and a lot of drivers didn't want to take me and they like we're able to do that. Uh, I didn't really have a great recourse. I mean, I could go to the taxicab commission, but you know, people don't do that. And so what has happened there is that when you kind of try to move all the way to the other side, you get you get this waiting that is about who can generate political influence and who can organize. And that, in in instead of it being this sort of idealized competition between letting, you know, a more socially value structure, uh, social value oriented structure decide, and letting the market decide, it's letting the market decide versus letting these, you know collections of uh, of interest groups decide. And that that is where people come in with this rough preference for the market, that that will lead to more things like Uber, which I think most people, even if they have problems with certainly how the company was run, I don't know that many people who are willing to say, like, we should go back and not have, you know, taxi cabs ordered from our phone. I know a lot of people, myself included, who want to make those jobs better, make it more just and so on. But that, you know, most people feel that was that was an advance.
1: Yeah, good. Um, so, so first of all, it shouldn't be a part of the argument for the side that I'm pressing right now um, that the old system was idyllic and there were all kinds of distortions and even corruptions in it and taxicabs are a good example where there were lots that are easy to identify. Um, and it, it is isn't also true that certain meritocratic ideas were useful in breaking up those distortions and corruptions. And that's true not just in taxicabs. That's also true, for example, even in the places where I think you and I are most likely to be critical of meritocracy now, like elite education and elite university admissions. You know, meritocracy was brought into these elite universities precisely to break up an aristocratic, sclerotic, self-dealing elite. And it worked. It did a good job, not just instrumentally, but it, it did good things. It was proper to break up that elite. So I think all of that's true here's the place at which I want to push back a little bit. If if you think of something like taxi cabs, there are three basic constituencies in a business like that. And this is going to be true in almost every business. They're the people who use it, who use the service or buy the goods. They're the consumers. They're the people who own it. And then they're the people who work for it. And one thing that's happened is that We as a society have not paid enough attention to the interests of the people who work in these businesses or in these sectors of the economy, and in particular, the middle class people who do it. And there's a sense in which it's socially proper, both I think optimal, but also just for both the consumers and the owners to take something of a hit in exchange for the people who's doing the jobs, doing middle-class jobs that pay a living wage, and hyper-meritocracy of the sort that we have now prevents that from happening. So it's 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 not an accident that Uber has a business model in which drivers are paid very, very little. It's an essential part of the type of technological innovation and economic organization that extreme meritocracy produces.
2: So when you um use the term extreme meritocracy, I think there's actually a good place to to interrogate what the term means. So one of the things listening to you there that I wonder is do you just want a different form of meritocracy? A form of meritocracy where the decisions of what is merit have been made in a different way by by a different group. So right now we can we can argue that on some level we are outsourcing those decisions to something we might call the market. But of course, a market is also something we structure and we've deregulated finance and, and made a bunch of these things um, uh, profitable in a way they wouldn't have been under uh, other um, policy regimes and sometimes in ways they're not profitable even in other countries. Um, but nevertheless, uh, there's I think an idea that we've like outsourced these decisions to the market because the market is somehow fair or at the Ivy League level or the college level in general, we've outsourced them to admissions committees. And is what you're saying that we should have a meritocracy, only that it should be more connected to a better vision of society, both what is socially useful and how to weight the interests of the the, the people who are involved there? Or is what you're saying that we should just not be weighting by
1: who can win some kind of competition at all? That's, uh, that's an incredibly helpful question. I've been struggling with how to think about this, and partly it's because I don't think we have the words in our language, and we may not even have the concepts that we need to really get clear about about what it is that a position like mine is advocating for. So, I, I clearly am not in favor of a system in which good jobs or income or wealth or other forms of advantage are allocated by breeding or caste or race or gender. Or any of the ways in which previous aristocracies allocated these sorts of advantages. In addition, it seems like you've got to be right that the best society is one in which people get ahead by being good at things that are worth doing. And in that sense, that sounds a little bit like it's a kind of meritocracy. On the other hand, one of the essential features of meritocracy of the sort that we have today. Is intensive competition and the sense that getting ahead literally means getting ahead, that is to say, being better than others at something, rather than being good enough at something to be socially useful at it. And I think the kind of system that I want is one in which, for many parts of our social and economic life, Advantages are given to people who are good enough at the thing that they're doing to be socially useful, and then the sort of competitive part of this is limited to circumstances in which competition has a very high social product. And there can be lots of areas in which it just doesn't. There can be some areas in which it does, particularly scientific innovation and research of certain sorts. But others, you know, the business I'm in, law is one in which in our system, it's incredibly competitive. The competition is structured according to rules so that every little bit of skill all the way up the skill distribution makes the lawyer much more valuable to her or his client. But it's not the case that competition produces a high social product. And that seems to me to be a kind of a mistake. We'll be right back after a quick break.
3: Support for The Gray Area comes from Greenlight, If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
2: It seems useful here to actually cut the different things one might want to solve into their different components as you're starting to do there. So it sounds like when we're talking about the system meritocracy, well, you just want a different system. But systems are made up of these, these subcomponents. And so I am just want to throw out some of the ones that I'm hearing in this conversation. And you can tell me um, if they're wrong or, or, or which ones I'm missing. So there's one dimension of your critique that is about how we value different jobs. Right. Um, Why does a management consultant make more money than a kindergarten teacher? I think a management consultant is worth much less to society than a kindergarten teacher. So, okay. So how do we value jobs? Who decides? How is that done? Um, Another thing that you're bringing up here is intense competition among the elite, and in particular, the way that competition then creates incentives for them, right, to like lock others out and then cascades down in society. So the economist Robert Frank at Cornell has written a number of books about this phenomenon and in particular the way we have these sort of negative sum competitions up high. So like housing is a very good example of this where it is totally rational to be fighting for more and more expensive homes that are near to the good schools. Um, that it makes sense on the individual level, but on the collective level, you just have an endless arms race. And so he uh, has a set of policy interventions that he, that he argues for that would begin to cut down some of these upper level competitions because they're just cascading down the entire income stream. And so you can do that by by taxing bigger homes and you can do that by taxing consumption. And there are a bunch of things there, but maybe you really want to look at upper level competition um, as a problem of itself. And so you just say, you know what? We're just going to have a 70% income tax over $500,000 a year, and it's just going to be worth a lot less to make that much money and to fight into those upper echelons because we don't think it's valuable to have people fighting into those upper echelons. Once you're making that much money, you've been incentivized to do your best, and after that, maybe you should do something that you like. Then there's this question of reproduction of the elite, which is, is society set up to actually encourage mobility and to give people a chance or to allow You know the rich to spend so much more money on their children that nobody else is going to have a chance to get into the Ivy League schools. And you can imagine forms of class-based affirmative action and so on. And then like the other thing that seems important to me here is this idea of exit. Can you exit the meritocratic competition and still live a good life? Can you just say, you know what? I just want to work a job. I just I want to work a nine to five. I want to have a lot of time with my family and kids and I want society to respect me and I want to be able to afford health insurance and a reasonable life and a good education for my family and not worry. Um, can, you, can you both on the material and on the esteem level not be part of this competition and still have you know full democratic equality and, and a chance for your children to, to achieve the
1: dream of mobility? Do those seem right and am I missing some obvious ones? No, I think those are exactly right. Um, but the thing I want to try to argue or emphasize is that they're all related to each other. Yes, I totally agree with that. It's, it's, the
2: categories are fake in a way.
1: Well, I don't know if, I don't think they're fake, but I think they're expressions of one phenomenon. And it's the phenomenon we need to get a handle on. This is hard. I mean, it's hard for me. And so I'm not going to be as crisp as I would like, because it's really hard. You have to imagine a world that's deeply different from our world. But look, we could organize ourselves in our social life and in our production into roles. And we call these roles jobs, let's say. And the roles could be very different and hierarchically organized, or they could be really pretty similar to each other. So we could, for example, organize taxis in a situation in which the difference between the dispatcher and the driver is not very large. The difference between the skill, training, social class, productivity is not very large. Or we could organize it on the Uber model, in which the difference between the algorithm designer and the driver is an enormous unbridgeable chasm. We could organize finance, so that the middle of the skill distribution, the old home loan officer is the dominant worker. Or we could have de-skilled roles today's loan officers, and super skilled roles, derivatives traders. We could organize medicine in such a way that the difference between the specialist doctor, the nurse practitioner, and the pharmacist is relatively small, and most healthcare is delivered by people in the middle of the skill distribution. Or we could have a system in which we have super skilled specialists using lots of technology, fixing problems that are created because The rest of the healthcare system is not particularly skilled. And in each instance, what's happened in the United States is that we have moved towards the hyper spread out form of organization with a hierarchical narrow top and a big rump at the bottom. And that's connected to a kind of competitive and meritocratic way of understanding achievement Desert and competition. And all the, the things you described a moment ago: the difficulty of getting out, the lack of equality of opportunity, are all direct consequences of the stratification of the economic roles. And the core thing to do is to find policies, both in education and in the labor market, that recompress the distribution of economic roles and have us make things and provide services with jobs that are more nearly like each other and not so distant from each other as the ones we have today. Is that, am I, get, am I getting clear yeah, about something? No, I think, that's, I
2: think that's right. I mean, you make an interesting point in one of the lectures I heard you give about the way in which it used to be the case that you made a lot of money by working for or with the state. And that it is now the case that you make a lot of money by working against the state. Um, you know, either to corrupt it or to fight it or just sort of outside of it. But, it, it, you know, you make a lot more money being a lobbyist on the government than you make being a member of Congress uh, inside the government, which is, uh, on its face, a ridiculous thing. <laughs> right. Um, and a very bad system we've set up, by the way. And and that leads to something that I think is a little bit uh, unintuitive, but, but is important, and it's embedded in what you're saying. I think if you just wanted to be very simple about this point, we – assign status and respect through money. We, if you just look across society at what jobs we respect and the kind of esteem we give them, it just tracks the money we pay for them. There are a couple of, of, ex- of counterexamples that I would say are exceptions to proof of the rule, like bl- religious leaders in many cases. Um, but in general, we say we respect teachers. But in truth, like, why do people who would much prefer to be teachers become management consultants? It's because we don't respect teachers. We pay them low amounts of money compared to um, what that job takes and, and, and so on. We respect doctors more than we respect nurse practitioners, not because we believe always that we get better care from a primary care physician than an MP. I think in general, we often don't. It's because we know that makes more money. And so what you, it seems to me to achieve the role you're talking about, you need some way of just quite radically restructuring the salary distribution. Right now we do it through market rewards, right? We let the market handle it and we assume the market is in some way neutral, but it's not. And that's why I actually think you're at your point about in the past, you actually made a lot more money working for the state is important. There are different equilibriums of how you decide how much money people make. And if you want other things to have more um, value, you you either have to somehow sever um, the way we attach value to money, which I think is going to be unbelievably hard to do in any kind of capitalist system, and that includes the Scandinavian systems and others. Um, or you're going to have to figure out just a very different way of, of attaching um, resources to things, which you could do through taxing and then, you know, huge amounts of redistribution into things that would be that we consider more socially valuable, like teaching. I think the counterargument you would get from most um, economists or others is that would be inefficient. But a point you've made, which I thought was really interesting and, and research you've done, is that the like obsession with efficiency is itself an elite meritocratic thing and should be understood as maybe a social construct that holds a system in place, not actually on all that valuable economic argument
1: before which everything must bow and submit. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, but I, I also, I still want to push back a little bit in, in the following sense. I think one thing you said that's profound is that money is corrosive of other values. So that the kinds of forms of esteem and status that used to exist along many different dimensions all get consumed by how much someone's paid. And that makes it very, very hard to have equality because money draws people to be measured in a particular way, makes everybody comparable to everybody else. So I think that's absolutely right and that that's a tendency in a certain kind of capitalism that's really hard to fight against. But at the same time, there Are ways in which our current political and regulatory system encourages dispersion rather than equality. It encourages inequality. So think, for example, about management. You know, we have a market for corporate control in this country, which enables shareholders through techniques like leverage buyouts to shift to change the top management of a firm. And what that means is that top managers can be incentivized by owners, but everybody else in the hierarchy below them cannot be. So that wages paid to elite managers become a lever by which owners can get wealth, and wages paid to everyone else are just a cost. And what that means is that firms are encouraged to concentrate all of management at the top, to get rid of middle management, to turn production workers into subcontractors, and to get all the returns to the shareholders and the elite managers. And you see the explosion of the ratio between CEO pay and production worker pay. Now, that's the firm's management being structured in a certain way because of political choices and regulatory choices we made in how to structure capital markets. And we could structure capital markets differently, which would give firms an incentive to spread the management function all across all levels of the firm's hierarchy, as it is spread, for example, in Germany today, as it was spread in the United States in the 1950s and 60s, and you then have many more middle managers getting middle-class incomes. Both systems are capitalist. Both systems are market systems. Neither one is a more pure or free market than the other because both are constructed by political and regulatory decisions. And part of what I'm arguing for is that we should not just intervene once people have got their salaries or their incomes to redistribute, is that we should intervene to structure work in such a way that there are more middle class jobs and fewer super elite jobs and fewer gloomy jobs at the bottom of the distribution. Oh, I agree I agree with
2: that. I think it's really important not to think about the only role states have in markets as being redistribution. The the economist Dean Baker likes to talk about this as predistribution, right. and I think that's right. Um, but but I do think it's hard. Uh, so let me give a, an example of one way of thinking about this. I think it's particularly hard when you're doing sort of small tweaks about how things are treated in capital markets. To me, something that is coming out in this conversation and something that I believe about politics is that... A lot of different ideas are just power masquerading under some other rationale. So one way of listening to our conversation is that the meritocracy is a way of structuring power, which it is. Um, Things that are called talent are actually and ultimately become a form of power. So we're measuring people by power or the amount of power they're able to pass on. Money is valued not just for what it can buy, but certainly those higher levels because it is power. And that a lot of the structures that you're talking about in the economy, they are fundamentally the result of power flowing to the top, not of efficiency flowing to the top. But if workers had more power, for instance, um, they wouldn't be made into subcontractors. Um, And one reason that they are made into subcontractors is literally to keep them from amassing that power. It is very, very, very hard to unionize a very fractured working environment. Whereas if everybody's employed by Uber, it's much more straightforward how you unionize. And so, like I think, a, a simple way of putting this is that you want to redistribute power in society very radically. And if you are able to do that in different ways, then the social norms and values might change downstream from it. Um, that that is pro- that that is maybe the way to begin to uproot meritocracy. The thing that I don't know, um, the thing, the place where I think there's a genuine critique of this is not in its kind of ide- idealized form. It's more in the way of Well, do you actually have a better way to do this radically? I can think of better ways to do it on the margin, right? And, you know, I think we should have sectoral bargaining and, you know, I can think of a bunch of – I mean, this is sort of my bread and butter. But to get away from the bigger cultural values that you're talking about where there is this endless fight for power and resources and this valuing of endless busyness, that's harder and I don't know that – I don't know exactly how you turn that back and – the other thing is I, I I do question. There is still a part of me that questions. If we got the other part of it right, the valuing part of it right, we were able to give more power to the parts of the society and the economy that we valued more, would we even want to turn it back? Or would it be a better world if people were working 60 hours a week and justifying their short time on this earth? You know, trying to trying to do jobs that would help the next generation prosper even more and, you know, save the planet from warming and and so on. And that's where I get uncomfortable. I mean, there is a part of me that, you know, to, to bring myself back into it, feels I should work more because if I work more, maybe the work I can do will be helpful. Um, but like laddered throughout society, like I, I know that that is a, a culture I have imbibed and maybe a way I, I even um, fool myself. And so that's – I can imagine ways to restructure power. But the question that I think is a harder one is how do you restructure the values and even should you? Or if you got the power right, would the values actually be fine? And maybe we want a Protestant work
1: ethic of service workers. Look, I think the PowerPoint is is extremely crisp and elegantly put, and, and I, I agree with that entirely. And, and then there are two other things that you asked following from it. The first is how does one unwind this kind of a concentration of power other than through you know, small interventions at the margin where the power structure will just push back and it won't make a difference. And then the second is, if you could unwind it, wouldn't you actually kind of like a meritocratic arrangement if meritocracy and power could be separated from each other? Um, On the first question, an important part of the argument that we haven't talked about very much yet is that there's a kind of a feedback loop between education and labor In which the book traces out how the kind of inequality that we now suffer got going by building on itself through certain economic and social mechanisms. And the hope is that if one can start unwinding some of this inequality, one can turn that engine into reverse. So, you know, it took 50 years for us to get to where we are today. And it's not the case that there are policies that I can dream up or that anyone else can dream up that will undo that in three days or three years. Rather, it's setting in motion forces that are forces in favor of equality rather than forces in favor of inequality and letting them run. And then norms are going to develop in their shadow and economic structures are going to develop. And so the the real question is, where's the political will and what are the first steps? Um, On the deeper point you make, look, I'm also conflicted partly because i'm also a product of this system and i enormously value certain kinds of extreme excellence and i value them partly because i think they're good for society and partly just for their own sakes you know if you're a if you're a scholar certain kinds of scholarly virtuosity are something you care about very deeply even though you can't actually say that other people are made better off by them. You just think of them as beautiful or profound. And they're also the products of meritocracy. And everybody at every point in the society is going to have things like that, that they really value, that are connected to intense effort under competitive conditions. And and it's a big ask to say, you know, you should give up those values. Uh, And I don't know if it's an ask that that I want to make of myself or of others. More, I think what I want to do is say, look, here are the costs to all of us of a system that so valorizes competitive achievement and their costs of inequality and their costs of exclusion and degradation for those who are on the out and their costs of alienation and exploitation even for those at the top. And and we should think about that. And, And that's an important part of the ideal balance, whatever it is, rather than saying the ideal balance is to have there be no meritocracy at all. One of the key points
2: in that answer brings up something else I want to make sure we covered, which is, is technology in the shadow of our meritocracy or I think what you might just call our culture? Or is our culture in the shadow of technology? One of the arguments you make at different points is that we have technologies that are creating these very different distributions, these very unequal distributions – and we should move towards an equilibrium of generating uh technologies that will be more equal in in what they create but i think another argument you can make is that actually it is the technology itself that is driving us in these different directions that we are slaves to it more than it is slaves to us um, uh, you talk at some point about how aristocracy, the word, led to the word meritocracy and how the the aristocrats were these sort of land-owning folks who thought that they had virtue by by degree of having this relationship and tending the land that all these other people were working on. That became ridiculous in the Industrial Revolution, the idea that there was a virtue at all. Um, and the Industrial Revolution, I think, and its sort of downstream impacts and then the internet and so on, have made other kinds of virtues look somewhat ridiculous that we once had and have generated this. Um, you don't need land, but if you're really good with the capital or on the internet, if you're really good at being able to, you know, dominate the superstar economy, then it's all great. And so there, I think there's a real question of whether we're in control of the technology or the control, or, or the technology is a little bit in control of us and our values are warping to justify what winning
1: in this technological equilibrium looks like? Yeah, I think it's both. At, at every moment in time, the technology is very much in control of us. Um, it's because of the technologies that we have that, for example, modern derivatives markets can exist. Um, you know, the spreadsheet turns out to have been absolutely essential because it makes it not just theoretically possible, but economically possible to value complicated securities. And that's essential. And without that, you can't make money in finance the way in which people make money in finance today. And that's true across every sector of the economy. At the same time, I don't think that the arc of technological innovation has some kind of set or determinist or necessary path. We can shift it, and we shift it through policy. And another way in which we shift it is by the kinds of workers that we make, the kinds of training that we get, so that if you have a workforce that has the skills to deploy incredibly intricate technologies and you have meritocratic values of the sort that you were talking about earlier that valorize busyness, then technologies are going to arise that those workers can deploy. So the superordinate workers will draw to them technological innovations that make their skills so valuable. Those workers don't exist. Those technologies don't get invented because they're not deployable in an economic way. So there is a sense in which the way in which technology moves over time is partly contingent and partly depends on inequality and political choices. And that's a a source of hope. You you said earlier you're not a hope guy. Um, I'm not usually a hope guy either. But I think that's a real source of hope in that this is not technological determinism. We're not driven by computer innovations and big data processing to a world in which nobody has any work at all and only a few people have all of the resources. We can deploy those technologies and generate new ones in different directions that are more useful to a larger number of mid-skilled people. So as we sort of begin to
2: wrap up here, you're the Guido Calabrese professor of law at Yale Law School. You sit atop the the meritocratic superstructure in like one of the most storied icons of meritocracy, Yale Law School, and so every year coming through are these other kids who are students, I guess not kids at that point, who have won in the meritocracy up until now. They've gone to the best law school in the country. They're there with you, and here you are, um, trying to think about how to smash the meritocracy. What do you? Tell your students um, who have been in this game for so long and are now graduating with you know one of the the signal like passports that lets you traverse anywhere you want to some extent in this system. What do you tell them about not being part of it or resisting it or how to think about their lives differently than maybe they have before you came to your class? What is what is all this theoretical argument amount to when you're just sitting there faced with the people who are actually here to be the next generation of it?
1: Yeah, I think that's a. That's a hard question. There are some things I tell them directly and then there are some things that they lead me to see. Let me say something about each. The thing I tell them directly in so far as I can, and I'm not a very credible bearer of this message given where I sit, is that if they want to have a flourishing life and live well as people. They should understand that probably for the rest of their lives, their biggest failures will be personal, not professional. That They've reached the point at which they're going to have jobs and careers that are going to go either great or well enough. But it's hard to be a human being. It's hard to be a husband or wife. It's hard to be a parent. It's hard to be a friend. It's hard to be a child of aging parents. And... All the things that will make them so successful at their jobs are going to make it hard for them to do well at these other things, and they should focus on that as much as they can. And if they can trade a little bit of status or a little bit of income for freedom to pursue these other parts of their lives, they should do it every time they can, understanding that they're in a system that makes that trade hard to sustain. Um, and that's you know a professor's life advice, which is worth exactly as little as they pay for it. And you know it, it, it hey, are they I, really it, paying so little of it for Yale? <laughs> well, you know, they're not paying for that. That's the sure. thing, right? <laughs> They're paying a lot, but they're not paying for that. That's that that's the sort of free extra that I impose on them. <laughs> um, uh, but but the other thing, and in a way this is I think more important for our conversation, going you know, this the question of hope versus despair that that has been a thread through what we're saying. Um my students have changed dramatically in the last 15 years. 15 years ago, they felt like they were in the catbird seat. The world was great. They were sort of unself-consciously delighted with themselves and with everything that was going to happen to them. And uh, it was very hard, if you talk to them, to get them to see that maybe this system wasn't working so well for other people, and it was almost impossible to get them to see that it wasn't working so well for themselves. Um, today, that is not what my students feel. They're keenly aware that lots of the forms of achievement and production that, that they valorize and that they think they have reason to valorize because they do are also connected to exclusion and inequality that others are suffering. And they're keenly aware that the life that they seem to be constructing for themselves isn't the life that they would most want. They feel like they've just run a gauntlet, they've gotten through it, and the prize is, once they get into the workforce, another gauntlet. And they don't want that, and they want to find a way out. And it's not that they know how to get out, and uh, I think they're not, you know, you and I have had this conversation, which I think we don't quite know how to get out. But, but they see this in a way in which they didn't before, and so to have an elite that is aware of the harms it imposes on others and is aware that the system that imposes these harms is not really serving it well either, seems like it's a, it's a necessary condition and maybe a, a helpful condition for finding a way out, although it's obviously not a sufficient condition. I think it's a good place to wrap up. So
2: let me ask you what is always our final question here, which is what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? Uh,
1: So three books on this topic, Um, I think- It can be on anything. Well, one great book on this topic is actually Michael Young's original book, The Rise of the Meritocracy, which is a very weird book and uh, difficult to understand because it's so weird. It's a fictional social history written from the perspective of the 21st century, looking at the last years of the 20th century. But it's a profound and fascinating book. Another book I'd recommend is uh, Claudia Golden and Lawrence Katz, The Race Between Education and Technology. Um, I disagree with their bottom line conclusions, but it's a fantastic piece of economic history and sort of socioeconomic thought. And if I'm allowed an article rather than a book, Uh, Daron Asamoglu's Technical Change and the Labor Market in the Journal of Economic Literature which is also a terrific, terrific article, and traces through the relationship between technology and work and how it is that we've reached the point that we're now at. Uh, I think all three of those are fantastic. Dan Markovitz, thank you very much. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. That is the show. There's something
2: I brought up in there that uh, maybe I want to throw out to see if people have interesting reflections on. Sometimes you get great uh, answers that help me think about this show more clearly and also my own life more clearly. Something I, I discuss in there is that there is a certain set of drives that I had um, in my 20s into my 30s that sort of feel maladaptive now. Um, the, the person I was, which worked out really well for me, it, it doesn't feel fully aligned with the person I want to be, um, having a family, but also just you know my own changing values. And so I'm curious for you, putting aside my specific situation, if you've gone through something like that, have you taken... Have you been driven by something for some period of your life? I don't just mean intellectually. I mean emotionally. I mean that you wake up and you're anxious without it. You wake up and you're driven towards it, you know, somatically. Have you been driven by something and changed it? Have you Have you actually changed what powers you? i be curious, one, if so, and two, what was the trigger? Uh, what changed it? Because something I find is you can intellectually change your values or what you want to drive you. But there's something deeper than that learned over long periods of time that, that is a lot more resistant to even big differences in your situation. And I think it's an interesting place to think of for growth. Like, How do you how do you change that sub-rational part of you that is driving you to structure your day in a certain way that is that, that little gnawing piece at the back, which if you haven't done X, if you haven't lived in X way, well, you don't really feel like maybe you've been um, justifying your time here at all. Uh, so Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Uh, For any of your reflections on that, I might try to do something with them on the show or maybe not. (laughs) We'll see. Uh, As always, thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media
0: podcast production. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use... More than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.